Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to start out in Isaiah, but we're going to be in 2 Kings 16 if you want to turn there. So I want to give a spoiler alert at the beginning of this sermon. They missed the Messiah. In the first century, they had this text, and many others like it, and they missed the Messiah. They thought that Jesus was going to be a completely different kind of king. And we have a temptation sometimes to read the Bible and be like, how did they miss this? But I'm convinced that you and I, given to the same temptations they were given to, preoccupied with the same things in our lives that they were, often miss what God's doing in the exact same way. And so what I want to talk about this morning as we head into Thanksgiving week, as we head into Advent after that, is what to look for to make sure we don't miss what God is doing. What should we be watching out for? What should we be paying attention to? What should we be expecting so that we don't miss what God's doing in our lives in this season? And as most of you know, what you're expecting often determines what you see and what you look for. I have a friend who was going off to a cabin on the lake, not this lake, but a cabin on the lake for the weekend a couple of years ago. And when he got back, he was, I was like, how was the trip, man? He was like, it was great. It was really fun. And it was a group of friends, and somebody brought their dad. It was just kind of weird. There was just this guy that was there that was somebody's dad, and he was with us all weekend. It was really fun, and he, he was a nice guy and all, but I just thought it was so strange. And I get in the car, and my buddy was like, wasn't that weird? And he was like, yeah, that was kind of weird. He's like, who would have thought that Bill Self would spend the weekend with guys like us? <laughs> and uh, yeah, for, all, for our one Jayhawk fan out there, Bill Self is the, the KU basketball coach, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And uh, when he looks back at his friend, he goes, who's Bill Self? <laughs> and... Um, I just love that because it all depends on what you're looking for. To him, that situation was so strange. But to his friend, he thought, what a gift to get to spend that time with him. What you look for, what you expect, oftentimes determines what you see. And this morning, especially as we turn our attention to the coming of Christ in Advent, to thanksgiving for what God has done, we want to be attentive to the way that God works. And there are certain things to look for if you want to know what God's doing. And so to frame this this morning, I want to go back to the background of this text in Isaiah. You know, this, this, this is one of the amazing things about the Bible is oftentimes the Bible is commenting on itself. And this is one of those situations. Isaiah is a prophet during kings of Israel and Judah. In fact, his ministry spans four kings where he is speaking the word of God to the people in power to call their attention back to God's word. This is the function of the prophets all through scripture. You see, the people of Israel demand a king. 
And over and over and over again, those kings fall short of what God has for their people. And the prophets come in, and they remind them. They hold up the word of God, and they say, this is what God is doing. And so you have a book like Isaiah commenting on a book like 2 Kings or First and Second Chronicles. And so we actually know what was going on in the background when Isaiah said, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This was a real-life prophecy in a real-life context with real-life people making decisions that are similar to the ones that we're making now. And the word of the Lord breaks into that moment and says, God is doing something here. So in 2 Kings chapter 16, we get introduced to Ahaz. And here's a, just a great reminder for your Bible reading. If you go through First and Second Kings, it can get a little redundant. You have king after king after king after king. In Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and in Israel, which is the northern kingdom, you only ever have two good kings. Okay, so if you're reading these books, you should just expect these kings are probably not great. After David and Solomon, two good kings. One of them is Hezekiah, who is Ahaz's son. And one of them is Josiah, who comes a little bit later. So we know from the get-go that Ahaz is probably not a good king. And in the beginning of, of 2 Kings 16, it tells us that he was one of the worst kings that reigned in Judah. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of of the Lord his God. I want to take a moment and think about this. It's been thousands of years since Ahaz reigned, and we're going to get a few particulars about what he did as king, but the way the Bible always evaluates these kings is whether or not they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They could be great geopolitical strategists. They could be great financially. They could be great culturally. They could be great empire builders, and some of them were, but the Bible has a standard that overrides all of those other things. Did they or did they not do what God called them to do? Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did not do as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We find out later in this story that Ahaz, like I said, is, this is a real kingdom, and he has real political concerns. He's pinched between two competing powers. At this point in history, the kingdom of Assyria is becoming the dominant world power, and they are knocking on the door of the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, that kingdom is going to fall to Assyria within a generation. But at the same time, he has these other territorial powers who are threatening war against Jerusalem, and so Ahaz is stuck between political interests, between financial interests, between um, the heritage of the kingdom that he inherited, and between the people that he has been given authority to rule over. And by looking at his story, we get a couple of reminders of what not to do if you want to see what God's doing in your life. The first one that we see in this story is define God's work on your own terms. If you want to miss what God is doing in your life, here's what you do. Define what God can and can't do based on your own terms. This is exactly what Ahaz does. He says, I've got a political problem in front of me. I need a political solution. I've got an empire problem. I've got a military problem. I need a military answer. He wanted God to solve his immediate problem and by doing that, proved that he was on Ahaz's side. The problem is, 
Nowhere in this text does Ahaz turn his attention to what God wants. Nowhere in this text does Ahaz consider what God has done in the past. Nowhere does he look to what God might have promised for the future. He demands that God answers his prayers on his own terms. And as you can, as you can pretty quickly put together, this is not a problem that is only 1,000, 3,000 years old. This is a problem that's, that's with us today. One of the commentators on this passage says, you know, the prophet Isaiah comes and speaks into this. So actually starting in chapter 7, Isaiah begins to speak into this situation. He comes into the king's court and he delivers the word of God. And the commentator says, if we permit the prophet Isaiah to have his say during this war, then the theological issue is not a wrong political choice. The theological issue is that the king failed to consider all of his options. He thought by a study of the map that he had two options, a small coalition or a large empire. It is the insistence of the prophetic faith that beyond the two obvious policy options, there's a third choice of trust in Yahweh that is not simply pious talk, but walking in the faithfulness of the promises of God. See, what you don't do if you want to see what God's doing is define the problem without God as the major player. That's what Ahaz did. He said, I've got two political options here. But what the prophet Isaiah was calling his attention to is there's always more than that. God is always up to something. And when we, dis- when we define our choices like this, a lot of times what it does is it reveals what it is that we actually worship. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the creation story. And in the creation story, we see that Adam and Eve and us, like them, have been created with certain ways that we are designed to function. For example, we were created to image God. We were created to walk in his ways. We were created to worship him. We were created to work for him. We find all of this out on the opening page of the Bible, and the thousands of pages after that reveal that people are constantly exchanging things to worship. They're exchanging the vocation of spreading the glory of God across the whole earth for building their own name, building their own kingdom, seeking their own interests, worshiping their own gods, demanding that people worship them. That's the human story. We're all tempted to substitute things to worship. And a lot of times the way that we define our terms reveals what it is that we really worship. So what was Ahaz really worshiping? Political power. His legacy. The amount of sway he had over the people in his kingdom and the kingdoms around. And so he looked for a God that could serve his interests. This is what we are often tempted to do is we define our problems around what we think the greatest good is. And if you demand that God fit in that box, we constantly miss what he's up to. The second thing that we do if we want to miss what God's doing is define his work on our timeline. So not only did Ahaz define things on his own terms, he wanted a geopolitical solution. He also wanted God to do it on his time frame. And this is so easy to do when we pray. A lot of times we don't just pray for our wants and desires. We also pray with a calendar, uh, a calendar request attached to it. God, could you answer this prayer and could you do it like yesterday? God, I, I know that you have a plan, but I really need you to come through now. If you want to miss what God's doing, put God in the box of your temporal framework. There's a term I came across a while ago called temporal bandwidth, and it's from a, a really obscure Thomas Pynchon novel called Gravity's Rainbow. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, 
But this paragraph is awesome. One of the characters says, your temporal bandwidth is the width of your present. Your now. The more you dwell on the past and the future, the thicker your bandwidth is, the more solid you are as a person. But the narrower your sense of now, the more tenuous you are. I think one of the problems and one of the ways to miss God is this exact concept of a very small temporal bandwidth. And we actually have all kinds of routines and habits and desires right now that make sure that we only focus on a very small sliver of time. For example, depending on how you use it, your phone trains you to do this all day, every day. Your phone is discipling you. It is catechizing you to think, I must respond to the now. Right, I can prove that this is true because your phone buzzes at you and it alerts you all day. And if you're more disciplined than I am and you've turned notifications off, then great for you. But for me, it's always a temptation of your phone buzzes or it rings and you respond to it. And you get to the point where you have what, what uh, psychologists call phantom buzzes. Does anybody know this? Where you think in your pocket your phone is buzzed and you pull it out and nothing has happened. That means you have been trained. You have been well discipled to pay attention to the now. And what we do subconsciously when we do that is we expect God to abide by that very same time frame. If God will meet my immediate needs, then I'll be happy with him. But if he doesn't, then somehow God is falling down on his job to serve me. But that's not how God works. That's not how God works at all. What God does, if you read the Bible and if you're in community and you're praying and you're looking at what God has done, he actually increases our vision. He increases our temporal bandwidth to see that God is up to something bigger than our most immediate need. Last year, uh, when we were in Oklahoma City, my parents were out of town, but they had a dumpster, a big construction dumpster in their backyard. So I get a text, hey, the, the guy's coming to take the dumpster away. Can you go over and meet him? To which I jumped at the opportunity. Now, in this way, I'm still like a four-year-old, five-year-old kid. I love construction stuff. It's great living here. You get to see all this heavy machinery and stuff. I'm like, I'm going over there. And so I think this guy thought that I would let him in the gate and go inside, but I was out there for the whole time. I was, you know, helping, not really, but, you know, he made me feel like I was helping. And one of the things I noticed was right when he was about to latch the dumpster onto this truck, he put these struts out. They're called outriggers or stabilizers. And on the truck, what you do is you take these big arms, either out from the bottom of the truck or down on the side, and it puts the truck up off of its wheels, and it gives it a stable base. And, and all big trucks do this. If you want to lift something really big, or if you want to send somebody up in a cherry picker, if you want to have a crane, you need breadth. No matter how heavy that truck is, no matter how good the operator is, breadth is the only thing that's going to enable it to lift something heavy. And I would argue this morning that your spiritual life is exactly the same way. The breadth of what you can see God doing is the key to getting through something really heavy. It's the key to seeing what God is doing. Your spiritual breadth means you remember when God answered your prayers in the past. Your spiritual breadth means that you actually think about God in terms that he defines. Your spiritual breadth means that you're willing to say, sometimes I don't know what God is doing, but I trust that he is good. So if you want to miss what God's doing, define on, on your own terms. Make sure that he only answers a very specific question. Make sure he only does it in a very specific 
time frame. That's what Ahaz does. He doesn't even consider God in the first place, and he says, God, you must act now. Now, into this context, Isaiah brings perspective. In the text we read this morning, this is such a famous Christmas text, and we celebrate it because it is looking forward to the ultimate son who is born, the ultimate king of kings, Jesus Christ who comes, but that's like 600 years after this scenario. See, God's time is not like our time. And this text actually meant something in the moment, and it meant something bigger as time went on. It means something even bigger to us now than it did to people in the first century. It clues us in to look for what God is doing in our lives, regardless of where we find ourselves. So if you want to see what God is doing in your life, I want to turn your attention to these four titles that Isaiah gives for the son who is born, who we know is Jesus Christ. He says, the first thing is, he will be a wonderful counselor. Now, I don't mean counselor as in a person that you go to who's who's a therapist. Now, that, that is true about God. He is a wonderful counselor in that sense. But what this means in this context, this word is a wonderful counselor as in someone who gives wise counsel, someone who makes great decisions, somebody who always weighs the costs and the benefits, someone who always sees the big picture and decides rightly. See, we believe that God actually can see everything that's going on and knows and guides the way the universe works. And even when we can't see it, paying attention to what God is doing means that we defer to God's good will and judgment. I was speaking a couple of weeks ago to a a group of high schoolers, and we were talking about the problem of evil, which I think is one of the hardest questions for us just emotionally to grapple with. Why does God allow evil things in our world? Why why doesn't he just wave his hands and everything is great all the time? Why does he do that? And I was telling them, there are all kinds of things that we could say for specific situations. And in hindsight, lots of times you can see what God was up to, even though when you were in it, you didn't see it at all. But the big picture is, if you believe that God is good, and you believe that he is all-knowing, and you believe that he has your eternal best interests in mind, there's this great Jewish proverb, if you knew what God knew, you would do what God does. If you saw it through his perspective, it would make sense why he lets the things happen that he does, why he stays the things from happening that we never even knew about. See, he's a wonderful counselor in that he has a plan that he is bringing towards completion. We know this. If you read the Bible, the end of the Bible is already a given. We know what God's going to do. He's going to bring justice. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And we aren't sure exactly how we're going to get there, but we know where we're going. Now, I want to give you an example of this. We're coming up, and as many of you are, the holidays can be a really joyful time, but it can also be a really sorrowful time. And in my family, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of my granddad passing away. And so his birthday is always right on Thanksgiving or right around it. And so as a family, that's something that's been hanging over us this year. And it takes you back to that moment last year where we're walking with him as he's sick and, and we're grieving together. And I was thinking about that story this week in, ter- in terms of this passage. And I thought one of the things that was so interesting at the time is he starts to get sick and he can't practice law anymore. That's what he did for a living. And everybody was very disappointed because he loved doing that and everybody was sad. But because he couldn't practice law anymore, he had a little more time. And so he got to start coming to my men's Bible study because he didn't have an excuse not to. So I invited him. And 
he would come, and we had a great time getting to spend uh, about three minutes in the car because he always insisted on driving me back to my office after the Bible study. Now, this Bible study was on our campus at the church I worked at in Oklahoma City, but he always wanted to get in the car, drive around the building, and go back. And it provided us with about 100 three-minute conversations. And I had never gotten to talk with him about faith at all. That just wasn't something that we talked about. That wasn't something that he was interested in. But looking at the prospect of getting sick and passing away, those spiritual thoughts started to rise up in his mind. And so we got to have these conversations about his faith. And as much as, when I look back, as much as I would have loved for him to be healed from that, when I got to stand on the stage and do his funeral, it's so much better to have the confidence to say, I know where he is spiritually. I know where he is, because we talked about it. And up until that, we had never had that conversation. And I'm not saying that it made it easier, but I am saying in the scope of eternity, which would I rather have? I'd rather see him again. I'd rather see him again. And so I look back and I think, God, I couldn't see it at the time, but you were up to something. And I'm not saying that every time in the moment we see it. And I'm not saying that everything that we go through in life, you come out the other side and you say, I trust you 100%. But those moments in your life where you look back and you see, God was up to something I didn't see. He is a wonderful counselor. He is wise. He is good. He has our best interest in mind. The second thing he says is he's not just going to be a wonderful counselor. See, because when they were reading this text, they probably thought, okay, this is about an earthly king. And if you go through this passage, it sounds at first like this could be a really great king. A child is born, a son is given, the government is going to be on his shoulders, this is going to be awesome, he's going to kick off the Assyrians, and we're going to be triumphant. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Great Mighty God. That's not a term you use for kings, that's not a term you use for earthly kings, Mighty God. See, all through the history of Israel, even beginning back in Genesis 12 and 17, God promised Abraham that he was going to make a great nation. And not just that, he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make you a great nation so that through you and your family, I will bless the whole earth. God's plan from right after the fall till the very last page of the Bible is that he would come and be with his people, blessing the nations of the earth, blessing the people of the earth. Remember in the story of Adam and Eve, they get expelled from the garden. So God says, out to the east, they go out, there's a flaming angel with a sword who's guarding them from getting back in. And in that moment, we know that at some point, God is going to bring things back around where his people can dwell with him again. And sure enough, if you read through the Bible, Jesus says in John chapter 14, my father has given me a mission. I've done everything that my father said so that if you love him and you obey his commands, my father and I will come and we will dwell with you. See, the end goal of your life is not that God would solve all of your temporal problems. He does that. And we, we love that when it happens. His goal is to be with you forever. That's the goal of all of Scripture is that God will dwell with his people again. He says over and over in the Old Testament, they will be my people and I will be their God. And I will reign among them forever and ever. In N.T. Wright's book, Jesus and the Victory of God, he says, the idea of Yahweh being king carried the particular and definite revolutionary connotation that certain other people were due for demotion. I love this. The fact that God is going to become king means other people are going to be demoted. Caesar Certainly. Herod, 
Probably. The present high priestly clan? Pretty likely. When Yahweh is king, Israel will be ruled properly through the sort of rulers that Yahweh approves of who would administer justice and judgment on the nations. This theme in Scripture is that God is coming back. And he came in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate in Advent, that he came then and that he is coming back again. For to us a son is born. He will be called Mighty God because God himself will rule over his people. The third thing he says is that he is an everlasting father. An everlasting father. This is probably one of the most common themes through Scripture, that God is like a father to his people. Think for a moment how radical this is. Not just that God is Lord over his people, not just that he is ruler over his people, that he is like a father to his people. I don't know if you guys have seen this clip uh, going around the internet the last few weeks. So there's this school in Southwood in Shreveport, Louisiana, Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. And over the course of three days, 23 students were arrested for fighting and um, for all kinds of things. And this group of dads decides that they're going to do something about it. Have you seen this? This is just the most incredible. Go later today, not during the sermon, and search Dads on Duty on YouTube. This is just incredible. So this group of 40 dads band together, and they start taking shifts at the school. And there's like six or seven of them at at a time, and they come to the school, and the arrests stopped immediately. They have no actual position. And in fact, the video is hilarious because they're just wandering the halls, making dad jokes, talking to each other, laughing, but they're providing a presence in the school. And so this reporter sits down with this group of dads, and they've got these great t-shirts that say, Dad's on Duty. And he says, do you think you've stumbled onto something here? This is a question only a reporter can ask. Do you think you might be onto something here? And one of the dads says, not everybody has a father figure. And we decided that the best people to take care of our kids is us. Just being here makes a difference. I think we've been lulled into thinking sometimes in our culture that dads are the butt of every joke and Dads are kind of the goofballs of the family, and that's true. One of the things they talk about is the dad jokes. The students just can't get over the dad jokes. But there's something really deep and powerful about how God designed dads to function. And that's not to the diminishment of moms. But God says over and over in Scripture that he is a father. And what these dads are showing is good fathers make a world of difference. And I love all the things through the Bible that God realizes that just like a lot of the students in this school, as these fathers said, sometimes there isn't a father figure. And God says over and over, I love this in Psalm 68, verse 5, God is a father to the fatherless. In Psalm 27, we were reading this this week in our devotional time, if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. In fact, God is so committed that he is willing to step in where we fail to be family for each other. In John 14, I quoted this a minute ago, if anyone loves me, my father and I will love him and dwell with him. He's going to be an everlasting father. He's going to be a faithful defender. He's going to be a wise counselor, and he is going to be the prince of peace. He's going to be the prince of peace. And this brings us back to our story with Ahaz. This is what he really wanted, peace. But he defined it 
differently than God does. See, God wants something more than geopolitical peace in Ahaz's case. He actually wants the peace that comes through trusting in his son, peace with him. I love the verse in Romans 5 where it says, we have been justified through faith and now we have peace with God our Father. That's actually a peace that nothing else can ever infringe upon. If you have peace with God, it begins to trickle out into your relationships with everyone else. If you know that your sins have been paid for, if you know that somebody loved you enough to purchase you back from death, it brings peace that can't be touched by Assyria. It can't be touched by the coalition around Israel. It can't be touched by the things that threaten us now because in the scope of eternity, our peace is secure and final. I want to end with this. A lot of times on Sundays, I like to have a little worship service before this worship service. I want to make sure that I'm ready for this worship service. So I'll worship and I'll listen to a sermon. And this just really struck me. This is a parable from this sermon I was listening to just this morning. It says, so imagine uh, 200 years ago, before there were phones, before there were cars, a father and his son are walking into town. And as they walk into town, right as they get on the horizon, they start to hear this clanging, just bang, bang, bang. And they get up to the edge of town and they realize that it is the blacksmith who's working early in the day. And the little boy has never seen this before. And so he comes up to the town and he sees the blacksmith over this anvil. And he is just hammering on this piece of metal. And as he watches him do it over and over again, as they get closer, he yells out to the blacksmith. He says, hey, aren't you afraid you're going to break that thing? And the blacksmith looked at him and he says, this anvil is hundreds of years old. And it has worn out dozens of hammers. And that point struck me this morning that there's a trust that we have in something so unshakable that it's worn out dozens of hammers. And I thought, this, that's what this story is really about. Which are we focusing on, the anvil or the hammer? The anvil or the hammer? Because God's promises, if you look for what God is doing, and you trust in what he's done in the past, and you expect him to fill his performances in the future, that anvil has worn out so many problems. So many problems have come up against the anvil of God's character and his word, and it is still true, and those problems are gone. So if you want to see what God's doing, if you want to catch what it is that he's up to in your life, look for those qualities. Look for his character. Look for his faithfulness. Look for his goodness in your life. It's an anvil that's worn out many problems. Let me pray.